Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Um, our song, our uh, scripture passage from today is Psalm 133. Behold, I'll read it to you. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we enter into this new season, we just pray for an abundance of your blessing. Lord, we, uh, as the two churches have come together, firmly believing in our hearts that this was your will. Lord, we don't always understand your purposes and the reasons that you do things, but that's part of what makes us believe that this is from you, because Lord, you are the one, uh, your ways are holy, your ways are completely different from human ways. We as humans in the flesh, we have our own ways of doing things, but your ways are so much greater and higher. And Lord, your ways are mysterious. But God, we trust you. We trust your power, your majesty, that it is in your plan for your kingdom to come. And Lord, out of your grace, you use regular people like us, even though we don't deserve it. And so, Lord, we thank you. We put our faith and our trust in you. And I pray that not only would we have the spirit of unity during this season, but that there would be a a willing, submissive spirit as well, that in humility, that we submit ourselves to your plans, we say yes to you. Whatever it may be, Lord, that you're asking of us, that we're willing to just say yes, to go along with it, and to trust that you, in your sovereignty, in your plan for us and for this world, always know what is best for us and for your people and for this world. So we can never, we're always better off if we say yes to you. So God, we say yes to you. We say yes, we submit, we want to be obedient to your plan and your purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as um, I knew that today we would all be together, and I was thinking about this coming year and about the various um, challenges that that we will face. You know, whenever you bring two groups of people together that have kind of history and ways of doing things, there's bound to be, you know, little things that come up here and there, there, uh, things that we need to sort through. And so it seemed to me, I didn't even have to really think about it too much, that the most obvious thing that we could do today, when we're all here, would be to focus on unity. So um, unity is one of those things that um, it, it's sort of a barometer in the church for how the church is doing. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of churches and organizations have very sophisticated uh, tools by which they can measure the health of a congregation. But if you think about it, really, unity itself is probably one of the most significant um, indications that a church is on track. And that a church is being the church that God wants it to be. Because unity means that the individuals within the church are not trying to uh, dominate or assert themselves. Um, You can guess that if a church has unity, probably most likely, you know, people aren't being power hungry and seeking to control things. Um, So unity is is a very great barometer. I think it's a really uh, worthwhile thing for us to pour ourselves out into and to try to achieve during this, this next year, to seek seek to realize the unity that God has made for us. And another reason that that's important is because for the secular world, it is the disunity of the church that is probably one of the most off-putting things about Christians in general, is the fact that Christians historically have, are so divided. We're all in different sects and different groups. There's like a bazillion different denominations. And I think if I was somebody that was outside the church looking in, and I see Christians, I see people who are supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they can't get along, 
I'd be like, what's up with these people? Uh, what, like, what could possibly be more important than, than their God and their worship, that they're going to get divided and they're not going to work together, they're going to squabble together? So for the purpose of witness and for the purpose of representing Christ to the world, really unity is absolutely important. And tragically, one of the things historically that has had an absolutely devastating effect on missions around the world has been the inability of missionaries to uh, be able to work together. This was one of the things that was in seminary, and I took a, a course on missions. We were learning about the hi history of missions, but in many situations in which, you know, you'd have a group of missionaries that would go out to a foreign country to try to preach the gospel, that it would it would be not sickness, not malaria in certain countries, you know, not hostility from the natives and stuff like that. But, but one of the, the greatest deterrents to the mission of the church was the fact that in many situations, the missionaries themselves, they couldn't even get along. And they were squabbling. And so they would end up uh, failing in their mission, and then they have to pack it up and come back home. So it's tragic. Uh, a, a good friend of mine was a pastor in the Netherlands, and... Um, that was the story that they experienced there. Him and about four or five other partner missionaries went to plant a church in the Netherlands. And at the end of the day, after a number of years, it, the whole thing completely fell apart because the missionaries themselves couldn't even get along with each other. So this is a, this is a sorry shape of affairs. And I think, I think therefore, uh, unity truly, truly is something that is worth working towards, is worth devoting ourselves to, um, and, and is a worthwhile endeavor. So let me just talk about the, the beauty of, uh, of unity, what is unity, what is and what is not unity, what makes for unity, and then finally, the fruit of unity, okay? So Psalm 133 is a very interesting psalm. It has this, uh, a couple of pictures that maybe um, to us make no sense. He talks about unity is beautiful like this oil that's dripping down the head of some guy. We don't know who this guy is. And it's, it's, this oil, is, it's almost like kind of a gross picture, this oil dripping down his beard and then going all over his robe. So, so what in the world is that about? So just a little, bit of, um, a little bit of background here. Verse 1 says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And I think, just start right there, starting right there, that no truer words have been said. I have two boys, Eli and Gus. They're ages six and seven. And when these boys get along and play, man, it is a, it is a beautiful thing. Uh, we will be at the uh, playground and folks that have, you know, one kid or they have kids that are sp spread out in age will look at Eli and Gus and be like, that must be really nice having two boys that are so close in age that can be good friends. I'm like, that's what's up. That, that's what I'm talking about. They, it was great. We had them back to back. The Lord blessed us. They're able to be best friends. But the thing is, today in the car on the way down here, um, got, you know, they were fighting over who could get into the car first. And then Eli pushed Gus and Gus pushed Eli. I'm like, guys, you don't get in the car in like two seconds. I'm about to drive off. So you better get your act together. So as a parent, you know, if you're a parent, you have kids. Kids fighting is like pretty much the worst thing in the world. It makes you want to um, you know, it just makes, it's just an awful thing. So if we think about it from God's perspective, how beautiful it is when my children are getting along and how frightening and horrifying it is when my children, whom, I'm, whom I love and I gave myself for, can't get along. I mean, I think it's not really that hard to understand that from God's perspective, when we can play nice and when we can be unified in our preaching of the gospel, we can be unified in mission for the sake of the world, for the sake of the lost. This is a beautiful thing. So what does it have to do with the, all this oil, this precious oil running down the, 
the, the beard of Aaron. So Aaron was the, the first high priest that was commissioned um, by Moses way, way back in the Old Testament at the very beginning uh, after the Exodus, after God rescues his people out of Israel. And in the law, in Leviticus, um, it explicitly states a formula or a recipe for the sacred anointing oil that would be used at the temple, or at the tabernacle, and then later at the temple. So God actually provides a recipe. Uh, he says it's supposed to be made of this oil, and a little bit of that oil, and the fruit of this plant, and these seeds. And he says it's to be a secret recipe. And I want you to have a, a, a perfumer whose job it is to make nice-smelling things, to take this recipe that I've given you, and to concoct a very special sacred anointing oil. And then basically in the Old Testament law, uh, Moses tells Aaron, you take this oil and just put it everywhere. You anoint the tabernacle, anoint the ground, anoint the utensils. Everything is supposed to be just covered with this very, very special sacred anointing oil. And the oil secrecy of the recipe is so important that God actually says that if anybody tries to replicate this oil or duplicate it, they are to be put to death. So not very charitable on the part of God. He does not want anybody attempting to copy this oil. This special temple anointing oil will be used in one place, in one place only, the tabernacle of Jehovah. Okay? Now I want you to imagine that you are an ancient Israelite, and maybe a couple times a year you have an opportunity to go worship God at this temple and when you show up in the courtyard, you smell this fantastic, wonderful, unique, sacred anointing oil. You've never smelled anything like it in your entire life, right? You know how powerful smell can be. You know, have you ever had a situation where, like, you're in a store, you pick something up, and it immediately conjures up a memory from childhood, something you haven't, um, you haven't smelled that smell in, like, 20 or 30 years? I mean... Smell sticks with us, right? And remember, this is a completely uni unique perfume. There is no other, it's a unique recipe, and it's a secret recipe. There's no other oil anywhere in the world. And these people are simple by our standards. It's not like they're constantly bombarded by entertainment. So listen, when these folks show up at the temple of Jehovah, I guarantee you that is the highlight of their life. That is the highlight of their year. Okay, they don't have TV. They don't have fancy Broadway shows. So for them, right, this is as good as life gets, is, is being able to visit God and pray in the temple. And when they walk into that temple, there's this aroma. Wow. And so that, imagine how special that oil is. And then the psalmist says, it is as if the unity of God is as if that oil were being poured out in abundance on Aaron. So you can imagine that, how, how powerful that oil is. Because when you smell that sacred anointing oil, you immediately think of God. It is the aroma of God because that's what you associate it with. You've only ever smelled that oil in the temple. So imagine this particular oil is being dumped out on the high priest. And the high priest is not allowed to leave the, the temple, right? Everywhere, uh, everywhere he is, when you encounter the high priest, you smell this oil and it makes you think of God. So that means that he, dripping with this anointing oil, makes us... Think of God. He says that is what unity is like. He's like, you, 
not just Aaron, but Aaron's a priest, but we're all priests. He says, when you are living in unity and when you are maintaining the unity of the body, it is beautiful and is the aroma of God, just like that anointing, that sacred anointing oil that was on Aaron. Do you see? So there's something about God's people dwelling together in unity, being unified, which gives off a beautiful aroma, the aroma of God himself. It makes people, wow, there's something special here. There's something really amazing. So that's the anointing oil. Now you know. You didn't know? Now you know. All right? Verse 3. He gives another interesting illustration. He says that the unity is this, is this blessed, wonderful thing. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. So just real quick. Uh, what we know about Mount Zion is that is a dry and arid place. So there is not a lot of dew in Mount Zion, all right? It, it is hot uh, and, and it is dry there. Uh, but Mount Hermon, on the other hand, in ancient Israel, this was like one of the most luscious, lush green places uh, in the ancient Holy Land. And it was known for its dew. So this is a place that just has lots of dew. Um, psalm 133 is a psalm of ascent. A psalm of ascent historically is believed to be one of the psalms that was using during the three annual festivals when all the adult males of Israel were commanded to visit Jerusalem. So you imagine that you're on a pilgrimage. This is maybe once or twice or three times a year that you and, and, and all these other people are streaming into Jerusalem for this very special sacred holiday. And it's so dry. But then the psalmist says, but the unity of God, the unity of the brotherhood and the sisterhood is like the dew of Mount Hermon. So basically, it's taking the two best things. It's taking the pilgrimage in Jerusalem and the dew of Hermon and combining him. So he's saying that when you are unified, when we live in unity, that is this refreshing, nourishing thing, just like the dew. All right. So what is unity? And I think that from a postmodern perspective, if we think like, what, you know, from our culture's perspective, that we are very, um, very skeptical of institutions. And one thing that I guarantee you that your secular coworkers do not appreciate or like is any kind of institution telling them how to live, defining their life for them, right? We live in a culture of individuality in which everybody wants to define for themselves what their life is about. So it could appear um, from a secular perspective that the church emphasizing unity is just a way of trying to control everybody. And, and maybe, you know, people have had negative experiences with the church and, and the church is very heavy-handed and the church says you're supposed to act like this, you're supposed to think like this, you're supposed to do this. But churches at times, maybe they can be power-hungry or you have certain leaders within the church that are trying to, to, to use their authority as ministers in order to try to control everybody. So I think there's a valid concern there. And so as we think about unity, I, I want for us to, to realize that there's a big difference between conformity and unity. And I think the greater concern that the, the culture has when it comes to this is really about conformity. And conformity, I think, if we, you know, if we define it, could be as saying that everybody has to look the same and act the same and to be the same. But unity is very different. Unity is more about having a shared heart or purpose. And so within unity, there's a lot of difference. Um, and I'll share a little bit later. I think that Scripture even permits us to have a certain measure of disagreement on some things. And that is not saying that you're not unified. So the, the unity of Scripture is not a heavy-handed unity that says you all have to look the same, you all have to act the same, you all have to follow and do exactly what I say. Like, that's very not, um, that's not exactly uh, what it's talking about. 
Um, I'm a big fan of post-apocalyptic literature. Um, how many of you have ever read the book Fahrenheit 451? Anybody ever read that? Or Brave New World, or um, what's another one? Um, 1984, right? Aldous Huxley and those guys. So those are great books. It tends to be the case, so post-apocalyptic literature is literature where it kind of imagines us, you know, 50, 100 years from now, and imagines the state of the world. And a lot of these books, they're, they're dystopic, which means that they're, they're painting a very horrifying and negative picture of what the future might look like. But kind of a, a common theme running through all of them is that the world is broken into chaos, and so the result is that the leaders try to grab authority, and they force people into boxes. And so in each of these situations, you have um, people are very, very squarely pegged into certain boxes within society, and then all of culture is designed to keep people in their box. So if you are in this class, then you've got to stay there, and if you are in this middle class, then you stay there, and if you are this other class, then we want to keep you up there, and people are almost bred in their brainwashed to, to, to maintain the, the status quo within society. And so there is no free thought allowed. You're not allowed to have any pen, independent thinking. So like in Fahrenheit 451, for example, they're all about book burning because they don't want anybody getting all crazy reading any books, right? We got to keep people calm, keep people obedient, keep the status quo. Uh, and that's how these, these novels tend to be. And friends, that, that, is, that is so different from the kind of unity that the scripture points us towards because the, it, it, the difference is freedom. Because in these dystopic pictures of the future, there's no freedom, and people are brainwashed into being happy in their station in life, yet that is not at all um, the type of unity that the Bible envisions for us. Biblical unity uh, allows for some measure of disagreement on things. A great example of this is in, uh, the Roman, in Romans chapter 15, Paul's letter to the Romans, where he talks about the weaker brother and the stronger brother when it comes to faith. He says that within the church, there might be people that disagree about days. So there might be certain folks that think like a certain day is holier than another day. And so personally, they have scruples about like what you would do or not do on that day. He says that there might be folks who are offended by the fact that you drink alcohol, whereas you think that it's totally fine for you to drink alcohol, but your brother thinks that it's not okay to drink alcohol. And so and then there's tension there. So the interesting thing in Romans 15 is that Paul never says that you all have to be exactly the same uh, have the same belief on these types of things. He allows room for individual conscience to, to determine what your practice is. And he says that instead of like us having this, this uniformity where we're forcing everybody to believe exactly the same thing on everything, he said you need to be more understanding and more patient with each other. So the scripture does allow for a little bit of wiggle room uh, on certain issues, not every issue, and we'll get to that, but it doesn't require conformity on absolutely um, everything. Um, biblical unity is, at the end of the day, about realizing our shared oneness in Christ. So the gospel teaches that through faith in Christ, the, the sacrifice of Jesus washes over our sins, teaches that through faith in Christ, we are brought together into God's family, and that we are made one with God. And God is one. So the entire idea behind the unity in the church is that if by faith in the gospel, if by faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, I am made one with God, then that means that I at the same time 
and made one with everybody else who is a part of that family. So that is the essence of Christian union. It's not that we try so hard necessarily to be the same as each other, but rather we seek to be united with Christ. And in our seeking to be united in Christ, through faith in Christ, through faith in the gospel, we are made one with each other. So that is the, the, the source of our unity. If we can be harmoniously in alignment with Jesus, then it follows that we would also be harmoniously uh, in alignment with each other. So um, a great passage that speaks to this is going to be from Ephesians chapter 4. It says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in Christ, God is one. Even though he's a trinity, God is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists in a harmonious flawless dance to the point where at some at some point it seems like we we can't tell if is it god the father that's active or is it the son that's active or is the spirit the three are perfectly in alignment with each other working together in this uh in this dance a a perichoresis is the the greek word for that and through faith in christ we are caught up into that and so we who are many form one body but even within this unity there is difference there is a difference of function and there is a difference of perspective. And so this exact same passage in Ephesians 4, which talks about the oneness of the body, goes on to talk about the multiplicity that also exists within the body. So let me continue reading uh, verses 11 through 13. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So interesting point there is that maturity in the body comes as unity comes, which means that if we are not unified, then we are not mature. But the unity comes as all five different parts are playing their role. So he refers to apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So all five of those are different roles that God gives to the body. As these different roles are active and participating, as the prophets are prophesying, as the evangelists are evangelizing, as the shepherds are pastoring, as the teachers are educating body, as everybody is fulfilling their role, the church is built up and it is unified. Um, Alan Hirsch has wrote, written a great book about the, the fivefold ministry office here. And one of the great things that Alan Hirsch points out is that, in fact, these, the five-fold ministries, they actually each come at life from a slightly different perspective. So the apostle has a certain way of looking at the world and looking at the church and thinking about the church's mission. The evangelist has also a different perspective. So I'm kind of a, an evangelist. I have sort of an evangelist heart. Uh, I can be horribly self-conscious at times, but I, I do my best to try to share my faith with people that I meet, to be outward in my faith. But I've always believed that it's important that the church is evangelistic. So as I'm thinking about things, and as I'm preparing sermons, and as I'm um, going through my week, I'm always thinking about you know, those who are outside the church. 
right? But imagine if we had a church that was filled with teachers, and everybody is just thinking about education, and we're looking at the people that are there, and it's only about pouring into the folks that are there, right? Imagine if you only have a church with teachers, then they're only going to be thinking about the folks that are there. There's going to, have, there's going to be no outside perspective at all. The result is that the church becomes very insular. But if you have that evangelist perspective, then the evangelist is going to be thinking about pushing the church outward. But imagine that we had a church um, that was only evangelists. What would be the problem in the church? Right? If we are only ever thinking about reaching the lost, and that was our 100% of our focus, chances are that we would end up neglecting the people that are actually sitting in the, the metaphorical pews. We've never had pews. We've only had chairs. But we'd be ignoring those folks. So you see how the church needs both. It needs both. It needs the evangelist. It needs the teacher, shepherd. It needs people who will go out and bring people in. But it also needs people who will care for uh, those who have already become inside, have already come inside. So that is a little bit about the unity. Uh, we can talk. Guys, the food is here. The food has walked in the building. So I know that that means I need to try to wrap this up here uh, as quickly as possible before you all just go for the food. Um, what makes for unity? Um, how, practically speaking, do we live this out? And I want to suggest to you that there are certain, certain things that Scripture shouts, and there are certain things that Scripture whispers. So there are th certain things that if you read the Bible as a whole, you would come away being like, this is one of the, the main points that Scripture's about. And there's no ambiguity on these things. They're crystal clear. There are, on the other hand, parts of Scripture that are a lot more difficult, and there are things that Scripture says, but not that loudly. It whispers them. So when it comes to actually practicing unity, I don't think we should ever be in a situation when we are shouting about the things that Scripture whispers. Do you understand what I'm saying? If Scripture shouts it, let's shout it. Let's agree on those things. But if Scripture whispers it, then why would we want to take something that is only whispered and make that the main point? Why would we want to get hung up on that little thing? Scripture whispers it. So I think the, 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 the way, practically speaking, that we live out unity is we keep the focus on the main things. And what are the main things? So if you've read Scripture from start to finish, if you have a kind of, and I'm a, I'm a big picture thinker, right? I don't want to lose the, the trees for the forest. I want to make sure that we, we keep in mind the, the whole of Scripture. You know, what is, the, what, is the, what is the message that is shouted by Scripture? Well, I think it's pretty clear, you can shout it from the rooftops, that God made the world. There's one God. He made the world. That, that it, all life has its source in God. I mean, you can't come away from Scripture and think any, anything else, right? This is clear. It's clear. It has its source in God, and God is one. Genesis 3, we, we know, and I think the Scripture is very, very clear, that the human race has radically fallen out with God through sin. And so there's a, there's a break. There's a departure. And that we in ourselves, in our flesh, are under the condemnation of God. We're under the wrath of God. That's Genesis 3. The, the, the rebellion of, God, uh, of Adam and Eve against God results in horrible uh, brokenness that enters into the world. Scripture is filled with stories about human brokenness. So I would say human brokenness is shouted in Scripture. There's no question. 
But from Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and onward, you could say that an even bigger shout is the fact that God, in his love and in his mercy, sees the broken human condition and does absolutely everything in his power to restore the brokenness in the world. And the call of Israel, the call of Abraham, the call of Israel, the covenants, the law, and ultimately Jesus Christ himself is God's massive effort to, to take this brokenness of the world and through Christ entering into it, entering into human brokenness, and then restoring a new humanity uh, among those who put their faith in the gospel. And then, of course, Jesus comes, he establishes his church. And I think that another thing the scripture shouts is the fact that these redeemed people, this new Israel that God is creating through Christ and empowered by the Spirit, have a mission to continue to go out into the world to make disciples, to seek the kingdom until Christ again comes again. So that's the gospel in a nutshell. Maybe I didn't articulate it in the best possible way. There are people that could probably articulate it better than, better than, I, than I could. But, but that, if you think about Scripture as a whole, that's the main story. That's the main thing. God comes into the world in the person of Christ. He sets us free. Uh, for those that have faith in him, we're reconciled with God. And then he equips us, he empowers us um, to be his missionaries in the world. So unity comes by keeping the focus on the gospel, keeping the focus on the mission. Um, and that's why, in a sense, having a mission statement, having a vision statement can be very powerful. Um, does anybody know offhand what Google's mission statement is? Because we do have some Google employees that are here, so I'm curious if they know. Yes? Don't be evil. <laughs> Don't be evil. That, that's actually not the mission statement. But that was, I read recently, that used to be in their code of conduct for employees. Do not be evil. That's a, that's a good one. But no, it's actually Google's mission statement is to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible, accessible and useful. I think that's a, pretty, that's a pretty clear and fantastic mission statement. And if I think about like Google Maps and stuff like that, it's definitely, it's definitely working. They're definitely like succeeding in that to some extent, although I'm sure they do a lot more than that. But can you imagine how powerful it is for an organization to have a clear sense about what their mission and purpose is? If we're the church, it's just as clear. It's just as clear. And of course, churches all have their unique vision statements and mission statements, and all of them are like a little bit different. But at the end of the day, if you're reading the Bible, if we're all reading the same Bible, then the mission and purpose of the, of the church is the same. The mission of the church is to worship God, first and foremost, to glorify God. It's that simple. But then along with that, right, God is on mission, and he invites us into mission as well. So we have worship on the one hand. We have mission and discipleship on the other. Um, I put mission and discipleship together because I think they're two sides of the same coin. Jesus, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he said, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. He says, um, Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey. So that's discipleship, learning what it means to be obedient to Jesus in our everyday life, being conformed to him. But he says, Go out into all the world. That's missions, right? So it's the same. It's the same thing. Mission is two, two sides of the same coin. You can't separate mission from worship because worship without mission, worship dis, without discipleship is hollow. In fact, if you read Isaiah, God's biggest issue 
with the Israelites in Isaiah is that they're going through the rhythm of worship. They're going through the routine of worship. They have great, fantastic worship celebrations. He said, but when they leave here and they go back out into society, they do not practice justice. And therefore, he says, take this disgusting worship out of my sight. I don't want to have anything to do with it. He said, I'm completely sick of it. He says, do not come to me and worship me if you're not going to love your brother and sister in the world. So you cannot have worship without love. You cannot have worship without mission. You cannot have worship without discipleship. That is Grace Faith Church and City Grace Church. That, that, is, our, uh, that is our mission. That's our, uh, our focus. And I believe that if we, as these two churches working together um, over the next coming years, can keep that, well, at least for one year, sorry, if we can keep that as the focus, if we can keep the main thing the main thing, if we can shout what Scripture shouts, and maybe we disagree and we have conversations on certain things, but keeping always in mind our oneness in Christ, this oneness that God has created through the cross, I believe we will see incredible power um, unleashed over this, this group. And that brings me to my final point, which is the fact that unity commands a blessing. Verse 3 of Psalm 133, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And the scripture is filled with stories about when God's people come together to worship and to pray, they can accomplish just about anything. And the Spirit is poured out when God's people worship in unity. Acts 4.32, I have this on the screen. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. When the church comes together in unity, the power of God is unleashed in that place. The Spirit is poured out when God's people are unified. Jesus himself said that if we agreed for anything together, we're praying in unity, that God would meet us there. So this is from Matthew chapter 18. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Unity in prayer, and this is why you hear somebody saying, so if you go to a prayer meeting sometime, you, you hear somebody saying, I agree with my brother, and I, I continue to pray, because it's saying to God, Lord, we're on the same page. We want the same things. We're coming before you asking for the same things. And there's power in that. There is power in that, because it blesses and it honors God when we are humble, when we stop making it all about us, and when we instead say, Lord, we want you to be glorified here. It's not about me. It's about us. It's, to get, it's us together. It's the body of Christ working and doing ministry and worshiping together. This is beautiful, and it honors God. And so God moves in power in those situations. So friends, that's, that's my hope. That's my prayer for this year. We stay on point. Keep the gospel front and center. Keep worship front and center. That we look for unity in the things that are important. Reaching the lost, caring for the poor and the marginalized. That is what it's all about. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we want to worship you, Lord. We want to honor you. This is not about city grace. This is not about Grace Faith Church. This is something bigger, Lord. And so, God, we pray that this year that as difficult as it is, and Lord, there's going to be times where 
perhaps there are disagreements, there are um, matters that we have to sort through, that we do so with much grace, that we do so with much patience and with much understanding, that, that we are continually seeking to put others ahead of ourselves. And Lord, we pray that even though from a worldly perspective, um, this is nothing fancy, this is nothing spectacular, yet Lord, there is deep, true spiritual power here because you are being honored and glorified by brothers and sisters coming together at the cross, realizing our unity in Christ. And so, Lord, would you move? Lord, would you help us to let go of needing power, needing control? Would you help us to see the glory and the benefit of being something, being a part of something that is bigger than ourselves? God, we humble ourselves before you. We pray for your spirit's movement in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.